What's up, everybody? Welcome to the second episode of Tuning Fork. It's a podcast about music and the Pitchfork Media hype machine. I am one of your hosts, David. I am your other host, Matt. Hey, what's up, Matt? We have a guest today. Do I introduce myself now, too? Yeah. I'm Trevor, uh, Matt's co-host from the They Might Be Giants fan cast, Giants Confirmed. The thing about the Giants is that they are confirmed. Yes, so they need to really work on updating that band name. This is a They Might Be Giants podcast, not about They Might Be Giants, and with another host named David. Yeah, this is a David, so glad to be on the show. (laughs) (laughs) He really is. Uh, So, um, Trevor, what are we talking about today? We are going to be talking about uh, Bell and Sebastian's once maligned third album from 1998, The Boy with the Arab Strap. So, Bell and Sebastian, they were like, they are still, um, like, major stalwarts of, like, indie pop. Like, I feel like at this point, almost everybody who is into any sort of indie music at least knows who they are. Yeah. They're one of those classic bands. Yeah. Yeah. Up there with, like, Pavement, I would say. Yeah, for sure. What's been your guys' like uh, history with Bell and Sebastian, though? Because I myself is, am like a pretty big fan. I was really into them when I was a teenager, and uh, recently, like last year, I decided to revisit their catalog for the first time in a while, even checking out parts I wasn't really familiar with before. And they really, really solidified them as like one of my all-time favorites. Yeah. So for me, um, I, I kind of listened to them a bit back in I want to say about two thousand two thousand six. Um, maybe 2007 because, um, my friend Nathan, uh, who is also a friend of Matt's from our time on the Lemon Demon Forum, um, where we also know Stephanie, our previous guest from, um, mm-hmm. was way super into Bell and Sebastian and all sorts of other, uh, indie bands. Um, and I think that he posted, uh, a link to listen to if you're feeling sinister. Um, and I listened to that and, uh, at the time I thought, you know, this is okay. It's not really my thing too much. Um, and then I think the album, the life pursuit came out and I was like, okay, I can, I can jam with this a little bit more. This is kind of more my speed. Um, yeah, we had, we had a music share thread on the forum and it was just, it was all media fire links all the time. Yeah. Rest in peace. Rest in peace. Mediafire being the way to find music. Yeah, just Google album name Mediafire, and it's right there. Yeah, and uh, for me, it was definitely the Life Pursuit. Um, I never really got into the earlier stuff until a lot later. Um, Bell and Sebastian is also one of those bands that someone decided they had to just send me the discography for, so I've just always had all of it. <laughs> that can be like intimidating, especially it is. especially when a band like I don't know like. I, I like the band, but a lot of their stuff can feel like very samey if you're faced with all of it at once. Yeah. Yeah. Because they had a lot of albums out by 2006. Yeah, they're going on like eight or nine by this point, I think. Yeah, and plus they had like long ass compilation out looking albums too. I don't mm. even know if some of them were compilation albums or if they were just fucking long. Well, before we get into the album we're going to be talking about today, which, like I said, is their third one, I thought it might like behoove us to talk about like their general backstory a bit. I don't know how familiar you, you guys are with that. A little bit, but not as much as I could be. Yeah, I know they're I know they're Scottish, and that it yeah. kind of started out as a solo project of uh, Stuart Murdoch's, and kind of evolved from there. Kind of, they were formed in Glasgow, Scotland, in uh, 1994 by Stuart Murdoch and Stuart David, 
both of whom had enrolled at Stow College's beatbox program, which uh, like uh, was for unemployed musicians. They recorded a bunch of demos together, and they were eventually picked up by that college's music business course, which uh, produced and released one single each year on the college's label, Electric Honey. And like, since they already had like a bunch of demos ready to go, and like the I guess people in charge of selecting them were like big fans, they decided to let them record a full length album, which ended up being their debut record, Tiger Milk. Have you guys heard that one? I have. Yeah, I've, I've listened to that a long time ago. It's been it's been a while. So the success of that one inspired uh, the two Stewarts uh, to turn the band into like a full time project. They recruited a bunch of other musicians: uh, Steve Jackson on guitar, Chris Gettles on keyboards, Richard Coldburn on drums, and finally uh, someone who like will be pretty important later: uh, Isabel Campbell on cello. Mm-hmm. Uh, Stuart Murdoch was like particularly excited to recruit her after learning that her mother would frequently call her Belle for short. Like, I've always gotten hey. the impression uh, that he thought finding her was, like, destiny because he quickly felt, like, totally in love with her. And the two began dating <laughs> on some Fleetwood Mac shit. So, like, it's Belle and Sebastian is really, like, a, a, a story of, like, a soft indie boy finding his waifu, I've always thought. That explains so much about why they decided to make this album um, part of, like, the lore of the movie 500 Days of Summer. Oh, yeah, absolutely. God. (laughs) Yeah. There are two movies I know that it gets shouted out in. Because it's like that exact aesthetic. Yeah. So in August 1996, they signed to Jeepster Records, and then they released their second album, If You're Feeling Sinister. That's the one you guys mentioned. It's like frequently referred. It's like that's considered to be their best one. Uh, It's a Pitchfork 10. So Yeah. mm -hmm. And then in 1998, they uh, released the album we're going to be talking about today, The Boy with the Arab Strap, um, which garnered a lot of positive reviews from like Rolling Stone and Village Voice, but um, it also had some pretty big detractors too, including one Jason Josephs, a writer for the uh, then three-year-old Pitchfork Media, which gave the album a 0.8 out of 10 and wrote a particularly scathing review, which like uh, given its brevity, I wanted to kind of read in its entirety. Of course. So uh, Jason says, mediocrity is not a punishable crime, but if it was, Bell and Sebastian would be enjoying their last meal right about now. The Scottish septet, (laughs) who made a truly wonderful album last year called If You're Feeling Sinister, has decided to parody themselves on their American debut, The Boy with the Arab Strap. And a fine job they did, lads. Whereas Sinister was filled with huge hooks, loungy chord change-ups, and a fistful or two of bitingly catty lyrics, The Boy is seriously lacking in all of that and more. Sinister was compared to Nick Drake and Fairport Convention. The boy will maybe remind you of the Starland Vocal Band, they of Afternoon Delight fame. Which, I gotta say, <laughs> it'd be pretty cool if Bell and Sebastian covered that song. I'd be here for it. Oh yeah, no, that'd be really good. Yeah, These are songs, this is the best part, these are songs so sticky they should be hanging from Ben Stiller's ear. And I don't mean that in a good way. That's a reference oh, to, um, yeah, something about oh. Mary, where he has, like, cum dripping from his ear. Folks, we're, we're what, uh, eight minutes into the episode, we got our cum mention. We're cum mention not, not confirmed. Definitely won't be the last one of the episode. Um, oh, absolutely not. In fact, I mean that in the worst possible way. Really, Sinister is well worth your time, but whatever an Arab strap is, it should be used to batten down the crap song hatch. Maybe next time they'll get it back together. I hope so. 
Jeez, maybe he's yeah. the one being bitingly catty. I he, it really like pisses me off that he didn't even bother to look up what an Arab strap is too. I mean, Google existed in 1998. And <laughs> it did. and and something you that were, I discovered. He could have well, altavisted it. So this review has like since been deleted from Pitchfork's like site and replaced by like one from uh, they re-reviewed it last year probably to for like the 20th anniversary and they gave yeah, it they a do, uh, they do reference the old review um, and how and how scathing it was in the yeah. new review they they gave it an 8.5 this time around and they even included it as like a number 11 on their list of the best albums of 1998. And yeah. uh, I wanted to, I wanted to stop to talk about Pitchfork for a second because going back to look up like the old site, I found something that I thought would like be pretty like I feel like productive to talk about on a Pitchfork related show. And that's like the the rating key they used to have. Yeah, I noticed that. That like uh describes what their each of their the ranges of the scores mean. So like you got 10 which is indispensable classic and then I like this a lot 95 9.9 to 9.5 is spectacular whereas 9.4 to 9.0 is amazing. Like what's the difference between that? <laughs> I remember this. It this was yeah. still a thing uh, on their site when I started reading Pitchfork. But this this Bounce Bastion album got a 0. 0.8 which according to this old ratings key breaks new ground for terrible. God damn. Yeah. Which like d- it it barely even describes the review, honestly. The the review kind of just calls it middle of the road it, for it the most part. Draws a lot of compare. It basically says like I don't like this because it's not if you're feeling sinister, which is like a pretty shitty way to review a record. Yeah, I mean that's yeah, how some people that. reviewed Age of Odds when it came out too. Yeah, and that's kind of what they did I, for. I, uh, that's kind of what they did for Centipede Hurts by Animal Collective. Oh, because absolutely! It didn't sound like their previous outputs, and they used the. Uh, the simile of it sounds like uh, a burrito hitting a windshield, mm-hmm. and it's it's a shame because I've heard like people actually say like, oh yeah, I was like turned off from this album by the the Pitchfork review. I never really checked it out because mm-hmm. I just assumed it'd be awful. And like it's yeah. kind of, I would agree that if you're feeling sinister is probably their best record, but this one is kind of like personally my favorite just because of I don't know, it's it's a lot of fun. There's a lot of cool lore behind it, and it's I don't know, it's it's yeah, I like it a lot. What was your guys' experience with it when you checked it out for the show? I really liked it. It's um, I my my favorite Bell and Sebastian stuff is like the real poppy stuff, which is why Life Pursuit's always been my favorite because mm-hmm. that one's just got, I mean, it's got Funny Little Frog on it. Yeah. It's <laughs> it's yeah. the pop one yeah, as much as any of it. Are pop. still blue. Yeah. <clears throat> um, but uh, experience... it was just it was a really nice, relaxing Saturday in the house experience. Yeah. When I listened to it earlier. I also, like, I really dug the spoken word stuff. Yeah, that stuff is interesting. I'll talk um, about yeah, it. I'll get into that. It, it seems to be, like, aping Arab Strap, the band. Arab which... Strap play, play a kind of a big role in the lore behind this. this yeah, I, I figured they would, and yeah. I'm familiar with some of Arab Strap's work, and also, um, fuck, what's the lead singer of Arab Strap's Aiden, name again? Aiden Moffat? Aiden Moffat, yeah, because I've He's listened to some of his solo stuff. He's a character. And, like... You know, a spo- spoken word in a Scottish brogue over some delicate instrumentals is kind of his thing. Mm-hmm. I've never actually mm-hmm. listened to Arab Strap, but I probably should. Just to like give you a picture of Arab Strap, uh, Matt, you don't happen to know like the first lyrics on Philophobia, do you? They're like really good. Let me look I, them up real. Quick. I don't off the top. Um, I think it like just gives you the perfect picture of who this dude is. Um, right, first, first, first lyrics from the first song of the, the band's biggest album. It was the biggest cock you'd ever seen, but you've no idea where that cock has been. 
You said you were careful. You never were with me. I heard you did it four times, but Johnny's come in packs of three. Johnny's being condoms. Right. So he's kind of like this. He's like a real scumbag. Yeah. Yeah. But he like revels in it. You know, he's one of those guys. But yeah, they play a big role in this album. That's interesting because I think like uh, it plays that plays a role in making this the band's kind of like most personal album so far. That's mm-hmm. one of my favorite things about it. Like Stuart Murdoch, uh, the band's like primary songwriter, spent most of those first two albums writing about characters. But here we actually get a lot of insight into his own life and experiences, which I think is a good pivot to make on your third album. And yeah. like things never really feel too intimate because he still spends some time writing in character and other times he addresses himself in the second person. But like if you're kind of familiar with his backstory, which I'll want to go into, uh, you yeah. can pick out uh, when he's singing about himself, even when he like isn't really. I also d- I did enjoy how much there's like other singers and other vocalists on the album. Like, I mean, there's always uh, on any of his stuff, there's um, like Isabel Campbell's singing a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, but like tracks where he's just not lead vocals at all are, are interesting to me. It's it's almost like a like that approach is always like a reminded me of like another big indie rock band from the 90s, Yola Tango. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My experience listening to this was um, actually kind of comparing it in my mind to other bands and maybe realizing where some of their influences came from. And so, yeah, some of my notes kind of go over that, that I took. I've always seen Val and Sebastian as like the Velvet Underground, but for pussies. (laughs) (laughs) As if Velvet Underground doesn't already just mean pussy. Right. Right. (laughs) (laughs) So before we get into the tracks, like the last thing I wanted to go over was that like, I've always felt like the first three Val and Sebastian albums, Tiger Milk, if you're feeling sinister in this one, uh, are set during different seasons. Like Tiger Milk has always felt like it's set in the fall. Well, yeah. uh, Sinister feels like it moves from winter into spring, which makes The Boy with the Arab Strap the band's summer record. And even more so than the previous two, which just kind of give me like vague seasonal vibes, Arab Strap feels like it focuses on one specific summer in the life of Stuart Murdoch, one that he like seems to associate with a couple things, those being struggling with chronic illness, spending a lot of time indoors, weird and unwelcome dreams, and most importantly, infidelity. Mm-hmm. And uh, th- that that uh, also just kind of fits into the, the colors used on the album covers, because Tiger Milk's all blue, and uh, Sinister's all red, and this one's all green. Yeah. Did the solid color thing for a while. I've also seen a grayscale cover of Tiger Milk before. Yeah, Tiger Milk is usually pretty gray. I love that like very concentrated aesthetic they have, though, like where every album is just like, uh, like kind of like a kitschy picture of something and like a like a washed out color it's really cool yeah, it's, it's like just... it's like a better version of what weezer does <laughs> almost yeah i actually did refer to this album as like the green album when i was thinking about it earlier <laughs> right <laughs> the uh it's just it's pictures of pretty but slightly uh unconventional looking white people yeah it's kind of like what the smiths did yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah okay do you guys have um, anything more you want to say before we get into the tracks? Um, I, all I can say is that I'm really glad that the Internet Archive exists so that we could read that 0.8 review. Oh, yeah. Because I, Pitchfork I, definitely doesn't want us to read it. But we're They gonna... should have to wear that like a badge. Yeah. Yeah, they are like I I understand critical reappraisals, but like deleting the old reviews seems like a bridge too far. Mm-hmm. It just like it's it seems really dumb to do. Yeah, they also don't have their original review of uh, In the Aeroplane Over the Sea, which was, I, I think now, may have been re uh, reassigned to be their top album of 98. 
It's not the funny. The funny thing. The funny thing is that like that album got what like an eight point something when it first came. It got out? an eight point seven. Got an eight point seven. Then they put out like a retraction, like a couple, like what, like two thousand nine or something. I don't know when they, it was. They did it in two thousand eight on the tenth anniversary. Yeah, and they give it like a ten, right? Yeah. yeah. But now, if they were to review it again, I guarantee it would get like that eight point seven again. <laughs> I, I bet it. No, that seems about right. It it wound but, up with like at like number like eight or seven on their like best of 1998 list yeah, yeah. i feel like uh it, it really goes uh, appreciation for that album really goes in waves for a you, lot of people not just for them you can't give a 10 to an album about a dude like romanticizing and frank and shit in 2019 you just couldn't do it <laughs> <laughs> i mean it's a good album and i still really like it but <laughs> it's one of my favorite albums ever i'd give it i'd give it a personal 10 but i'm saying if i was working for pitchfork i would not be allowed to i imagine yeah. That's just how the machine works, baby. <laughs> Let's start with It Could Have Been a Brilliant Career. Stroke at the age of twenty-four. Yep. Could have so, been a brilliant career. The album begins with like a song about career-ruining illnesses, which is something that I can see Stuart Murdoch relating to a lot because he like uh, he spent most of his twenties suffering from chronic fatigue syndrome, which he said like prevented him from working and basically kept him in his house and hospitals for like seven years straight. So it's hard not to see him like looking at like an Ill, like a career-ending illness and thinking like that could have been me. Yeah. And um, I guess that is when he wrote, like, a lot of the songs for the first three or four records, too. Like, he just he just wrote a lot because he was imagining being yeah. in bands. Most of, um, most of Tiger Milk, I think all of Tiger Milk and all of If You're Feeling Sinister were, like, all songs from that original seven-year period. But by the time yeah. they got to Boy With The Arab Strap, like, they'd completely exhausted that stuff except for one song. Okay. So this was really his first round of new songs, which I think is pretty interesting. Yeah, I, I was like, a song like this kind of wouldn't work being, I, I don't know if it would work being written in the moment of that, uh, of having that illness, because it would almost seem too depressing that way to be singing it. Yeah, a yeah. little bit. Because he, he didn't know he'd be anywhere where he'd be having, you know, enough success to be making a third album, let alone a first or second, when he was, uh, when he was basically bedbound for seven years. Yeah. I do like musically how the album starts, or how the, how the song starts. Um, just kind of with the bass, then picks up the guitar, then the piano. All their first three albums start with these really slow building songs that really kind of take off. This is actually like my least favorite of the three, though. Like this isn't re- this has never really been one of my favorite songs in the album, but I do like the way it sets up the record. Like I've already talked about how like I think it takes place over the summer, and what I think this song does as an opener is like establish the setting as one specific summer in which Stewart is like just starting to come out of a particularly bad stretch of dealing with his illness. And I really enjoy like the parallel of going into the summer season with the like beginning of a period of renewal. Like maybe you lost your winter and spring to dealing with like a shitty illness, but now the sun is out. And the weather's warm. It's easy, like, for me to hear this song and think of Stuart Murdoch looking in the mirror optimistically and going, like, it's going to be the summer of Stuart. Yeah. <laughs> Time to Seinfeld make some episode. sad songs. Yeah. It is a really good musical hook to start the album, I feel like. The da 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 
so many little melodies from this one get stuck in my head all the time, and that's definitely one of them. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. Stuart Murdoch is very good with melody. Mm-hmm. Like, <laughs> I mean, he's good with lyrics too, but I feel like melody is one of his ma- one of his biggest gifts. Yeah. Very sing-songy at times. Mm-hmm. This song doesn't really have much of an outro. It just kind of ends. Yeah, abruptly with like the image of like uh, somebody like wetting themselves for the last time <laughs> before death. Yeah. Pretty dark. That stuff. seems fitting. Yeah. <laughs> Mount Erie does that a lot too. He'll just kind of trail off. Oh yeah, especially lately. Yeah. I mean, if you have a song about if you have a song about like a sudden death, yeah, then you have to end it like that. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. he would have laughed by Deer Hunter. Oh yeah, sure. That one ends just boom, middle of a note. Mm-hmm. That song's about Jay Raytard, right? Yeah. 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 Halcyon Digest is also an extremely good album that I hope we get to talk to talk about at some point. We will. We will for sure. Anything that got above a nine in like the 2007 to 2012 period is yeah. is basically red meat for this thing. Yeah, it's fair game. Deer Hunter had some classics. Want to talk about this next song, Sleep the Clock Around? Yes. So there's this whistly synth sound in the background that I'm not sure what it is, but it just kind of keeps going throughout the whole thing. I'm really it's like good as hell, and I love one. to hear it. Yeah, yeah, like the they've. I always enjoy when like Bell and Sebastian kind of lean into like electronics as they like occasionally do, and I think this is one of the better examples. Those synths are really cool, and there's like a cool little cheap little drum machine in the song too that I like a lot. Yeah, it's kind of got that. Um, I, I think it's called a motoric beat. Yes, the, like uh, the, from Krautrock. Yeah, love that. Krautrock, yeah. Yeah, like Noi kind of shit. This is actually the last song from uh, that original batch of songs that Stuart wrote while he was sick. Okay, that makes yeah. sense. Mm, it's, I think it sounds more like something that would be on Tiger Milk and uh, mm-hmm. uh, Sinister Just, than uh, anything here. Because it's, like, it's almost like uh, the least specific song on the album. Like I feel like a lot mm-hmm. of the songs are about like one particular thing or one particular topic. Whereas this kind of just got a partic- touches yeah, on it's got a, a lot of things. It's got a particular poppiness to it, too. That mm-hmm. I feel like it almost makes it out of place on this album, but it also yeah. makes it like, you know, the bangeriest song. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's definitely like one of the big highlights, especially early on in the record. I think it has a lot of more like allusions to Stuart's illness, too, like particularly t- like the title lyric and the one that goes, look at yourself, you're not much used to anyone. Mm-hmm. Very good. This song reminded me of how when I my first one of my first reactions to Bell and Sebastian was this guy's not opening his mouth to say things. Oh, I, I get that. Yeah. <laughs> really, like, hush delivery. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's it's almost kind of like he's he's both, like, really emotionally singing, but mumbling at the same time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I really like the melody for this one, too, though. It's, like, again, like, very easy to sing. Like, take a walk in the park, take a Valiant pill, read the letter you got from the memory, girl. That's great. Yeah. And there's the big uh, horns and synth and organ break in the middle, that, which turns it into this big expansive sound, which you, I guess, weren't expecting at the start of the song. At least I wasn't. Yeah, I feel like they have like two songs on this one that have big like 
like revelrous kind of joyous climaxes mm-hmm. and this is the well, first this is one. the point where uh where stewart was leaning more into the the project as less a solo thing for him and more as like a collaborative project mm-hmm. so i assume he kind of wanted the other players in the band to you know have their chance to shine on the on the tracks and on the rest of the album as well yeah because yeah. like you don't have an organ break when you're you know a if, if, if you're really inward focused and all the songs are are you and written by you and all about you yeah you don't really have an organ break in your song unless you're the guy playing the organ. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, like this it's like Arcade Fire with the hurdy-gurdy. You need to work it in somehow. <laughs> this one's climax is like particularly explosive, though, because it's got those bagpipes, which I really like. Oh, yeah. They sure are Scottish. Yeah. They are is the thing. Uh, so next we shall got, we move uh, on to Is It Wicked Not To Care? Yeah, this is a cool little one. Not one of my big favorites on the album, but like, I dig it. It's a nice little song. Yeah, it's where Isabel Campbell takes the lead vocal for the first time in this album. The Bell of Bell and Sebastian. Yes. There is no actual Sebastian, though. <laughs> you think you would want to commit to that. Like, here's my Bell, here's my Sebastian. We're Bell and Sebastian. Yeah, yeah Matt, we're. <laughs> Matt, do you want to talk about uh, Colin's comment about uh, Stuart Murdoch? Yes, I have to go find it. Because it already scrolled off the screen. Uh, we're having our friend Colin live listen to the album and say his impressions into our music channel. Cool, I remember uh, that. We did, we did the Age same thing episode. for Age of Odds. Yeah. <laughs> Let her closer to the mic, Sebastian. <laughs> Someone right. let this poor girl sing louder. She sounds like his timid shadow. Right. <laughs> and he also follows with bagpipe. Now we're talking. Yeah, I think this one's. I think this one's cool though. It's like uh, I, I like I've mentioned them already, but I could see this one as like a Yola Tango song. Yeah. It's and got I think nice I little... hear auto harp in the left channel of this one. It's like really low in the mix, but I'm pretty sure that's an auto harp. I feel like they were one of the first bands like in like the current that batch of indie bands at least to like really lean into like baroque instrumentation and stuff. Like I don't know yeah. if we'd have like Vampire Weekend without that kind of shit. Yeah, I mean like yeah, this was the 90s. Like that stuff was in vogue in indie rock in what like I'd say like Arcade Fire times. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's starting around oh three oh four. Yeah, and then that's like Grizzly Bear started out then as well. They're yep. big on the Baroque instruments, and yeah, Bell and Sebastian they they really did lay the path for a lot of uh, a lot of indie rock in that way. In a lot of ways, really, they they their sound is it's pretty pervasive in what people were trying to do in like early 2000s. It's, it's like, it's, you could tell it's a lot of people who listened to if you're feeling sinister and been like, hell yeah, I'll try this. Yeah. Yeah. I almost feel like the amount of imitation going on during those years has like had a negative impact on like how people listen to the band now. Like it's almost like yeah, watching an old sitcom like and not samey and yeah. Yeah. It's, it's like watching an old sitcom and not realizing like the jokes are funny because they were like the first ones to do it, you know, and it's been imitated like so many times that it's become stale by now. Yeah. yeah. No, this is yeah. where the joke comes from. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And like, yeah. Cause I, I can think pretty like, since I've been, I've become a lot more familiar with music since like hearing life pursuit for the first time. Cause that was like one of the first albums I got, from the the music share thread on the forum and i listened to a lot of music since then that was what like 15 14 years ago at this point basically and 
yeah, it's new Bell and Sebastian as it comes out. I'm just like, eh, this is this sure is something. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, yeah, they were kind of the reference point for a lot of the stuff I'd go on to listen to. So next we've got uh, Ease Your Feet in the Sea. I realized when I got to this one that, in general, the drums are really low in the mix on this album. It, They're a soft it, band. Yeah, it kind of gave me like an old school jazz type of feel, like almost mm-hmm. like their drummers playing with brushes instead of sticks. Know who I've always seen as like a big primary influence on the band? Uh, Vince Guaraldi, the guy who does like the Peanuts music. Yeah, I could see that. Yeah, like some of their stuff on Sinister sounds like they were just listening to that Peanuts Christmas album over and over again. Yeah, like the really, the really kind of timid, you know. The sh- 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 yeah, sh- sh- this one's I cool. can imagine. I can imagine uh, Stuart Murdoch, if dancing at all, would dance like a Peanuts character. Yeah, it's it's easy <laughs> to picture the entirety of Alan Sebastian as Peanuts characters. Like just that that one that one video where they're all dancing, and you could you could immediately peg every single person in that in that uh, cartoon to a member of Bell and Sebastian. Absolutely, there are a lot of them. Is the thing. So I like to think of this song as like an anime style beach episode for the band. You know how like slice of life animes always have like episodes where people go to the beach, like the beach episode. This is oh, Bell and yeah. Sebastian's beach episode. It also just happens to be about a, like a suicide. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, Stuart Murdoch going to the beach during the summer and just thinking about his friend who killed himself. I mean, that seems like what what Stuart Murdoch would do. Yeah, yeah. It actually like took me forever to like realize that that was what the song was about, though. I always thought like um, he sings a lot in the second person in the song, and like rather than yeah. addressing somebody else, I always thought he was just like talking to himself, which I'm sure he is at parts. But like, I definitely mm-hmm. get the suicide read for sure. I mean, I, I probably I'm a noted lyrics idiot. In that it takes me forever to learn the lyrics for anything yeah. or to figure out what lyrics mean. Um, so I probably wouldn't have noticed unless I just literally did not read it on Genius mm-hmm. while like listening to the album. This is another like nice little jam in the style of Is It Wicked Not to Care That? It's like, like not a big highlight, but I enjoy it a lot. I particularly like that part at the end where like um, he's walking home and he's like looking up at the constellations and stuff. And that like little string and glockenspiel solo that happens halfway through the song is perfect. I love that. I mean, yeah, why have that many members in your band if you can't have someone just pull out a Glock? Yeah, it's a, it's a real, um, it it's really like adds really to, like, the cutesy uh, sound to me. Sure. Because uh, I feel like a, a lot of indie pop bands also kind of leaned into the Glockenspiel. Particularly, like, oh, yeah, uh, like, Los uh, Campesinos were big on the Los Campesinos were big on it. Uh, the Go Team. The yeah. Go Team love, love their Glockenspiel. Yeah. And, and yeah, that that acoustic solo is also really good. Big fan of this one. I like yeah. I, li- I, I like this one too about as much. A summer wasting. I've always seen it like these two as like uh, a pair, considering they're both about like you know summer and going to the beach. This is the summer album. Yeah, let's talk about a summer wasting. But if the summer's wasted, how come that I could feel so free? I spent the summer. Of myself. 
came before the beach one. I feel like that would make more logical sense. I would shift like some tracks around if I was reorganizing this one. Yeah, I got kind of a a crooner slash lounge vibe from this one. Like uh, he should be snapping to the beats, you know, and saying thank you after each line. <laughs> sure, I like that. <laughs> By staying up all night. Thank you. The only thing I'll read are faces. Yeah. <laughs> which is which made me think of you know the song "Take Me Away" by Ween from uh, from Chocolate and Cheese. Great, yeah, where they he is literally going like, "Hey, away. thank you." After Some every line, there, thank you. <laughs> Ween are a great band. I, I, I hope I hope you guys have an episode about them pretty soon. We're gonna we'll talk to... about the mollusk if it kills us. Yeah, we will for sure. I I wouldn't be surprised if you looked early in the Ween catalog, you'd find a song that sounds suspiciously like Stuart Murdoch, and then you're going to find out that it came out several years before Stuart Murdoch released any music. It's yeah. been known to happen, yeah. It's been known to happen. Yeah. Ween has just always been around. Like, even, even back in, like, the 19th century, Ween has been around. They're just like a... Yeah. A, yeah, like, it's like that moment in the horror movie where, like, you find, like, a, a painting from the Renaissance, and you notice that, like... A, it a looks a lot like Keanu the, Reeves. Yeah, that's that's Gene Ween. What? <laughs> <laughs> Gene Ween is just a spirit that inhabits different mortal bodies. Yeah. Yeah. Do you guys want to move on to the next song? I uh, Seymour Stein. Yes. Seymour Stein. He's just a person, right? Yeah, he's the, uh, he was at the time, I don't know if it's still current, he was the chairman of Sire Records, which was like a big record label that was showing interest in Bell and Sebastian right after they put out Tiger Milk, I think, and before they signed a Jeepster. So I guess this song was about like a crossroads moment for the band where they decide whether they wanted to like go with a major label or like stick to being independent. Yeah, Sire Sire was that, uh, that label with the logo, which always looked really cool spinning on a turntable. Because it was circular and had like the swirly S in the middle, that would look pretty pretty bomb on a turntable. Yeah, people don't think about these things anymore. <laughs> yeah, this one has Stevie Jackson on lead vocals, um, and there's like a really good anecdote from Stuart David's uh, memoir about them meeting Seymour Stein, where he took them all out to dinner, and like eventually, like uh, David saw the bill that they had rung up, and it was like twice his monthly income. Christ. Yeah. <laughs> But the band ultimately decided they didn't want to like go with the major label, and they stuck to Jeepster and like being an indie pop band. Mm-hmm. And then named a song after him. Yeah. <laughs> Imagine just being Seymour St- Stein and then seeing that later. Mm-hmm. And it's like so specifically about like the meeting with him. Like they reference like how he liked their keyboardist's jacket, and like how he said he reminded him of like uh, Johnny Marr. So like it's like yeah, they weren't really hiding anything here. This one kind of has like a country ballad feel. Um, it reminds me a lot of like the Velvet Underground's pop stuff. Like I feel like this could yeah. be on Loaded or even like their self-titled record. It sounds to me almost like something that REM would have put onto uh, Automatic for the People. Oh, I could see that too. Yeah, yeah. REM also a band big influenced by the Velvet Underground. And the hand claps in the outro are a nice touch. 
My favorite part is like the uh, the lyrics from the middle where he goes, promises of fame, promises of fortune, L.A. to New York, San Francisco back to Boston. Has he ever seen Dundee, which is like a much smaller yeah. city in Scotland? Yeah, well, I mean, that's I, I feel like that's just what's going to happen when you're uh, when you're meeting with an American record label, right? They're yep. they're only going to be thinking of America the whole time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He reminded you of Johnny before he went electronic. Yeah, that's, that's a good the uh, Johnny Marr one. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, this song was included in um, uh, High Fidelity. Have you guys seen that movie? I actually haven't. It's a good one. Uh, in, in it, Jack, uh, a young Jack Black refers yeah, yeah. to this I, song I do as know about this. sad bastard music. And that sucks <laughs> ass. Yeah. I've seen the other 90s uh, record store movie. Which one is that? Oh, uh, God. Empire Records? Oh, I haven't seen that one. Yeah, that's the one with um, Reese Witherspoon and Liv Tyler. I love Reese Witherspoon. The thing She's about sad bastard music is it's a much better description of like the national. Yeah, I mean, like, yeah, <laughs> yeah. In fact, I, I think a, I've, I've a... seen that. I've seen that used in reviews of the national before. Yeah, there's right. definitely a mopey quality to Bell and Sebastian, but like they don't strike me as a very sad band. Like it's melancholy and sad are two different things. <sighs> yeah, right. This next song uh, is so like our, our, our feeble North American brains couldn't understand it because we we're not somewhere where it rains all the time. I guess not. Yeah, they're not the band who played a song called Sorrow for eight hours straight. <laughs> Have you listened to that? The recording of them playing that the for eight that hour, long? Yeah, the eight hour sorrow? No, I haven't. I did. It's not worth it. <laughs> <laughs> there are some pretty emotional moments, uh, like towards like the back third of it, where like yeah. you really can tell that the band are struggling to keep going, but they're keep they're keeping it on. Those moments don't really translate very well to the uh, the, the vinyl box set. I wouldn't right. think so. No. At least also a vinyl box set. It's like it. what, like it's like forty minutes aside. Yeah. So you're gonna have yeah. to continually change your records. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. At that least they exhausting. planned to play it that long. Unlike uh, that time when Bradford Cox decided Peter yeah. Hunter was going to play My Sharona for like an hour. Yeah. Because <laughs> someone heckled them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That happened. Uh, that happened down the street from from where my sister uh, used to live in uh, in the Cedar Riverside neighborhood. <laughs> I like the way, of like the way you talked about it. Like other people would talk about a shooting. Yeah. <laughs> I, oh yeah, that happened on the street. The, the Bradford Cox thing happened on the street for me. Yeah, yeah, he played my Sharona for an hour out of spite. <laughs> yeah, the cops showed up. It was crazy. <laughs> so next we've got uh, the first of two dream tracks, a Space Boy dream. supposed to be all dark around with just a red surface but what if i got there and it was light all civilized and populated and stuff so i made a plan yeah this was the one you were talking about sounds like arab strap which yeah it totally does yeah yeah i also just love the phrase i dreamt i had to go to mars yeah specifically the, the <laughs> lyrics are so like and it's followed immediately by like i spend a lot of time in the day talking about going to mars but face it the reality of it in a dream which is a weird thing to say and like i spend all day talking about going to mars who does that people who went to space camp i guess yeah but this is um this is uh stuart david on vocals here the mm-hmm. other stuart yeah, I forgot that they were Scottish listening to this album up until this point. Mm-hmm. Then it really hits <laughs> yeah, you. Yeah, that's like, yeah, now, now you're just like, yeah, this is extremely Scottish. 
This yeah. one's cool though. I really like the instrumentation for like the first two thirds of it, but then I don't. Mm-hmm. I'm not a big fan of the vamp at the end after the spoken word. Yeah, it's a bit much. I wish they'd chosen a different way to end the song. It gave me kind of a like a Gorillaz Clint Eastwood feel. Um, there are especially yeah, because it has that melodic section. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. You mentioned gorillas. This is Trevor's trigger word. Uh, yeah. The rest of this episode is about gorillas now. Strap in, boys. Remember <laughs> remember when Ace from the Powerpuff Girls joined gorillas? Anyway. Oh, yeah, I do remember. <laughs> <laughs> Listen to Howling Monkeys, my gorillas fan cast. Yeah, do it. Uh, do you guys um, have anything else to say about this one? Yeah, park life. We're getting into some of my favorite parts of the record. Remember the Remember the Russell Brand park life meme? I do, where they would just put it after everything he would say, because it sounded yeah. like the verse to that song. <laughs> yeah. That was five years ago now. Yeah, time time sure is. But no, time I don't really have much else to say about the track. I just, I really like the imagery that's built on it. Mm-hmm. It reminds me of like, um, I don't know, like, who that artist is, but like, um, whoever did that, like, uh, picture book about like, that kid going into some kind of dreamland where like, his bed has really long legs. Are you familiar with what I'm talking about? I'm not, but it sounds interesting. Uh, what's it called? Little Nemo in Slumberland. Okay, here's a different oh, point okay. of reference. Um, Maury Sendak, like where the wild things are. Gives me yeah, the same yeah, kind of I vibes can, as I that. can see that. Yeah. Oh, by Windsor McKay. It was, it's a Windsor McKay joint. Okay. <laughs> I'm only familiar with him for a song that's about Logan Whitehurst. Okay. Like right. That was my primary reference point for Windsor McKay. <laughs> right. Um, I've been listening to the band Tortoise recently. I don't know if either of you guys have ever listened to I them. I have. They're like one of the original um, post-rock guys, right? Yeah. yeah. This kind of feels like a 90s post-rock, almost like a tribute to that totally. type of style. Because yeah. well, like, they um, jump around a lot like that as well. I think Arab Strap were frequently described as post-rock, too. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I know. Yeah, I could see that for sure. What it, what it like, mainly my, reminds me of is like... Um, my friend who was really into Arab Strap was also really into Godspeed. So yeah. it tracks... <laughs> What it really reminds me of now that I think about it is, are you guys familiar? Have you guys heard like Remain in Life by Talking Heads? Yeah. Yeah. That song has uh, that song ends with a track called The Overload. And the story behind that song is that the band had recently learned of this other band that was like blowing up at the same time called uh, Joy Division. And they had never heard any Joy Division songs, but they were like, let's write a song that sounds like it would be by a band called Joy Division. They got pretty close, actually. They got pretty close, yeah. You, yeah. Like, pretty close for the for the fact that it's like, if you hear that name and you aren't familiar with the reference it's making, yeah. <laughs> you the might not know where they're going with really it. really similar to the song I Remember Nothing um, off of the album Unknown Pleasures, which is the one with the funny shirts made of it. Right. The Joy Division shirt, shirt, shirt. Yeah. You can just keep adding shirt to that and it'll probably still exist. Yeah. Let's talk about Dirty Dream 2. Dream one, you had a whole lot of fun with a comedian. You stopped short of going all the way. You'll have to make it someday. Why is this happening to you? You're not a child. Why is this happening? You yeah, the second of the dream songs. I like this one a lot. Like the strings and horns are fucking great. This is the second song on the album I was talking about earlier. Like, uh, like this and Sleep the Clock Around both have these big dizzying climaxes. I really like this one. Yeah, it it kind of uh, reminded me 
that these were probably the beginning moments of this type of style. Yeah, like bringing like the Baroque into indie rock sound. I agree with that. Matt, you must yeah. love this one. It's about cum. Oh, yeah. No, there's there's <laughs> there's cum references in this one, so it's definitely a highlight to me. You are dreaming. Um, you are sleepy. You are stuck, you are to, stuck the sheets. to the sheets. Yeah. <laughs> this one's about having like weird wet dreams that like you don't know if you like are happy to be having. Dream I mean, 2 that's... was pretty special. Easily beats loving yourself. <laughs> I like that. Yeah, like the, I, I like that the first one is apparently about a comedian. Like, who do you think is like the best stand-up comedian around today that you'd like have a wet dream about? <laughs> I do know that there is that big, there's that weird Twitter that popped up recently that women love Nathan Fielder Twitter. Have you guys seen that yes. one? Yeah. yeah. That Nathan Fielder himself probably made. There's yeah. no evidence though. There's for no all, evidence. For all we know, it's legit. For all we know, it's, you know, a bunch of actual, like, female judges and doctors and other it's professionals. female professionals who love yeah. Nathan Fielder. <laughs> who love Nathan Fielder. <laughs> yeah. Thanks. They have weekly um, meetings about it. Yeah. Uh, Nathan Fielder is the best person for this, for it to be about. Yeah. <laughs> the other name I'm reaching for when it comes to, like, wet dreams about comedians that would probably be awful would be, like, John Mulaney. People are really horny for John Mulaney. I don't get it, though. He looks like a Republican senator. <laughs> He's he, Is he good or is he just tall? <laughs> yeah. Thank you, uh, Billy Eichner. Yeah. Uh, glad you, you understand me. Yeah, I've watched Billy on the street. So do we want to get into, like, the defining, like, the title track of the album and the defining We've event We've got to talk of... about the title track. Stuart Murdoch's Awful Summer, The Boy with the Arab Strap. time to arab strap in everyone did you guys look up what an arab strap is yes it's a sexual device made of leather and a metal ring uh, that is placed around the penis and testicles uh used to sustain an erection it's a cock ring it's a cock ring which he apparently did not know i doubt that <laughs> yeah right you're telling me no you're telling way. me a guy stays in the house for seven years and doesn't find out what a cock ring is i don't know uh, it's on Wikipedia, so I think it must be accurate. He's lying. So this song is like a... I think this song finally takes us into what I believe is the defining event of like this summer that Stuart is sharing with us. And a lot of like this is speculation, because like they haven't really talked about it in interviews or anything, because they wouldn't. But I think that like that defining event is Isabel cheating on Stuart with Aiden Moffat, the singer from The Arab Strap. Christ! Which is like is that what really, it is? It's really good. Like Stuart. Okay, so like starting off, like I want to start at the beginning of the song, which is about like going on bus rides. Uh, he's like yeah. talked about in interviews, I think, about how important bus rides were to him whenever he'd struggle with his illness, because like riding the bus would be one of the few things outside of his house he could do, and like uh, he'd like come up with ideas for songs while doing it based on things he would see. And like this song has a lot of references to Stuart's illness, like the bus stuff. Uh, he talks about like um, he compares hospital food to prison food and like has lyrics about mm-hmm. like being isolated and stuff. Um, but the like big the the turning point in the song is when he goes he goes to take a bus ride, but he misses the bus, so he heads home and finds like someone quote laid on their back with the boy with the Arab strap, and uh, the someone you know is implied to be Isabel, 
And then, like, if you pay attention, he sings The Boy with the Arab Strap twice, but the second time he changes it to The Boy from the Arab from Strap. From the Arab Strap. Yeah. Right. So, uh, given around the time when it was written, a lot of people have interpreted the song as being about Isabel sleeping with Aidan Moffat while she was still dating Stuart. And, like, I- I've always thought, like, in the second to last verse of the song, he really starts kind of laying into Aiden, which, like, makes it, like, the only, like, indie pop diss song I can think of. I don't know if you guys, like, know any others. But I just like indie pop diss song. Um, Yeah, I'm sure that I can think of. There's got to be some, but like I can't think of any off the top of my head. But like, I just love the way he goes about trying to shit on him here. Like, there's this great line where he sings, "Like we all know you're soft because we all seen you dancing. We all know you're hard because we all saw you drinking from noon until noon again." Which is always like read to me as like Stuart going like, "Wow, yeah, you contain multitudes. That's so cool. You're such like (laughs) you're such an edgy singer that you could be soft and hard at the same time." The thing about Stuart Murdoch is he could sing anything and make it sound kind of sarcastic. Yeah. Like, Like the way he kind of lilts his voice just kind of sounds like that. And there's, like, definitely something to the fact that he's describing him as both soft and hard at the same time, considering, Mm -hmm. like, the song is about, you know, using a cock ring. So I don't know if he's, like, particularly (laughs) saying, like, your dick doesn't work, but he might be saying, might be, this might be a song about how the dude from Arab Strap's dick doesn't work. (laughs) Although it it sounds like his dick was working just fine. I remember when I was uh, hearing about this album for the first time, I was reading about, it's like, Arab Strap really didn't like that the title track and album used his name, and I never really figured out, like, why that is, and that would be a pretty good reason if this song is, uh, you know, a confessional about infidelity. Yeah, but what I like most about it is just how, like, petty it is, like, discovering that your girlfriend is cheating on you, and then letting her know that you know by writing a song about it for your band that she is in, like to perform and then and would be the whole, in for another four years yeah and then naming the whole record after it and like closing your shows with it it's like so good and so petty and what's even better is like just what a perfect dude aiden moffat is for isabel to cheat on stewart with like the impression you get from his music like i said is that he's like this like miserable sad boy scumbag who's always like low-key bragging about sleeping with people he shouldn't be while still trying to like get you to feel sorry for him and yeah. like oh no I yeah he 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 is the best description of sad bastard music i yeah. think i i can't <laughs> like, even express really? like i can't express how perfectly like like it's so perfect that fucking the titular bell of bell and sebastian fits into his character that's like so <laughs> it's good. art it's art it's re- it really is it's about equality um yeah <laughs> what uh musically um what what kind of electric piano is this in this song i feel like it was used in a lot of like 70s rock it's like um, a Rhodes or something yeah like yeah, maybe elo mm-hmm. kind of comes it's definitely to got mind. that classic am pop sound which the band would really go on to lean into like with like stuff like the life pursuit yeah and i also took the note um because matt made this comment last episode Oh, we got a flute up in this bitch? Hell yeah. <laughs> yeah, that, that solo is really good. We can only listen to albums with flutes, so I can bring that up every time. Yeah. <laughs> the only thing I don't like about this song is that they fade out at the end on like what is one of my favorite lyrics in it, which is, what do you make of the cool set in London? You're constantly updating your hit parade of your 10 biggest wanks. Very good. <laughs> Big mood. <laughs> She's a waitress and she's got style. Sunday bath time could take a while. Great. Put it put it back put it back in your pants. <laughs> Maybe that's why Colin they finished says, it. Uh, it's just so so sad when the singer is the weakest link in the band. The oh, voice cuts out on the last all. track, and I'm like, wow, there was an okay song behind this guy. <laughs> 
I think like he definitely has a distinct style of vocal delivery, but like I think he's a really good singer. There's a lot of character in his delivery. Yeah. Let's talk about Chick Factor. song that doesn't have uh, Stuart Murdoch singing on it. Yeah. This one's uh, Stevie Jackson on vocals again. And it feels like it pairs up pretty well with uh, Seymour Stein, because I think this song is a, about one of the band members hanging out in New York with like a music journalist or something, and then like feeling like wondering how they'll feel when they like get back home and like it's like just a small town again. Yeah, this one's got um, this one's got that flute synth or like flute organ going on, um, which I think like was another big thing in uh, like sixties and seventies rock. And also more recently um, the band black moth, super rainbow really loves to use that sound. Oh yeah. Um, like uh, especially the song sun lips. It's like all the way through that. What a good, good fucking song. I thought that whole album's pretty good. Yeah. David, I know like we're like you mostly are just gonna be editing in clips of Bell and Sebastian. Can you just edit just a small clip of Sun Lips just right here? Right here? <laughs> yes, right here. I feel like Pitchfork kinda passed those guys over. Will rise. Like, I don't know why they didn't blow up to the point of, like, the way a lot of other bands blow up. Yeah. It really doesn't make sense, because, like, um, around the time that, uh, it was even, even, like, the tobacco solo stuff, like, it only ever got, like, sevens. Yeah. And all of it was really good. I can understand yeah. tobacco not really taking off, because it feels like he started really popping off solo, like, after the whole, like, real Pitchfork years, but, like... Yeah, Black Moth Super Rainbow were right in the dead of it, and they were like really speaking to that audience. It felt like yeah, like Dandelion Gum was two thousand seven, so yeah. like that that is the era. Considering the fact that we're talking yeah. so in depth about Black Moth Super Rainbow, I assume we don't have a lot of stuff to say about Chick Factor. It's never been one of my big favorites <laughs> on the song. No, I, I, it's okay. all I know is that it's a zine. Yeah, it's it a zine. It's a zine like that. that boasts that boasts that the song was named after them. <laughs> like congratulations, <laughs> you have one of the weakest songs on one of their like. I guess less beloved albums. Yeah, right. Um, I think I'm the outro a... has a viola in it. The arrangements are pretty cool. Again, this feels like something that could be on one of like the later Velvet Underground releases. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I wrote down that it kind of has a spiritualized feel. Oh, I could see that too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, never been a big favorite for me. I've never been another. I've never been a particularly big fan of this next song either. Uh, simple things. It's only like a minute and a half long. I do like the ending lyric, though. If you want me, all you have to do is ask a thousand questions, triplicate, and file file under simple things you ask to make a young boy sigh. This just seems like a it, it seems like a nice guy song. 
A little bit. Yeah. 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 I misheard that lyric as a young boy's son. <laughs> I'm like, did <laughs> did Justin McElroy write this about his young boy son? <laughs> son boy allowed. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it was like, if you want to look me up, I don't exist in usual places subtle as the wind is gray. Um, like, jerk off motion. <laughs> like, that's all that is. <laughs> Yeah. Like, just imagine me making the most exaggerated up and down jerk off motion. Yeah. Yeah. I think he wrote like, this. He wrote this song in a coffee shop and was hoping people would look at him and find him mysterious. <laughs> I think Bell and Sebastian are usually pretty good about not like leaning too far into like the whole like you know indie hipster sad boy stuff. But like here, like well, yeah, no, people misread them a lot. They I de- fail. They definitely yeah. do succumb to it occasionally, though. I won't defend them on that front. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. I do they're really just, like this closer. They're just a little. A they're a little twee. They're just a little twee. Oh, they're probably like in the top five tweeest bands ever. Like they're the patron saints of twee. It's like these guys, yeah. Heavenly and Beat Happening. I was gonna say Beat Happening has to be yeah. up there. Different kinds it's of twee. The, it's the yeah. international twee core underground. Yeah, I really love this last song though. The closer, uh, the roller coaster. Oh, it slaps. This one's it's so yeah, nice. It's so ride. good. This song is much more chill than the title suggests. Yes, and the fact that it's like about like mood swings and like uh, anxiety and stuff. That it's yeah. I like like that it's so soft and grounded. Like I I listen to it a lot whenever I'm like feeling anxious or like having a panic attack or something. It really always kind of soothes me and calms me down. The all roller the coaster ride of all the trouble kept her inside. Really good. I like that line. I like it as like I always hear that as like um, Stuart looking back on a summer at the end of August and thinking like. Fuck, I spent the whole season moping inside. This was supposed yeah. to be the summer of Stuart. <laughs> <laughs> this was the yeah. summer of me. Somebody wrote like... mill pool on his cast and then ran away. <laughs> <laughs> and then he got cucked. <laughs> yeah. I uh, like and and that's how he chooses to remember his summer. That's the defining event, getting cucked. Like I imagine him like almost like like going back to school or something at the end of the season and like having to write like an essay of like how he spent his summer vacation, just turning in yeah. this like the summer my girlfriend cheated on me with like an asshole in a shitty slowcore band. <laughs> yeah. He typed I- it in Comic Sans and like triple spaced it. <laughs> something else I like and about the, the title of the essay is of course a man cucked. Yeah. <laughs> yep. <laughs> I really like that um, this song has a ch- lyric that shouts out a character from one of their early songs, Judy and the Dream of Horses, from If You're Feeling Sinister. Mm-hmm. Take Judy with her bow and arrow. She's a mastermind. Too frumpy for the teenage population of her time. Car coat. She has a qu- quilted jacket with a hood if it rains. Big pockets for the pharmaceuticals she takes to fix her brain. I think that's pretty cool. That one's a mood. Yeah. 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 Good closer, though. I, I like this a lot. Good way to see the album off. Do you think anyone takes off their top to if you were to remove your clothes? Do you think the singer would notice when they <laughs> play the song live? I hope so. I think it's a really that's a really good last lyric for an album. Oh, yeah. Well, especially an album with just like, you know, just such a central sexual theme to it. Yeah. One that's like, you know, kind of a, a snarky reveal that, you know, that like your girlfriend slept with the singer of another band. 
Yeah. Yeah. Uh, like, this album could also just be called Philophobia. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it would work. Do people take their shirts off at Bell Sebastian shows, do you think? I don't think so, no. If they do, then they're wearing, like, eight more layers underneath it. Yeah. All flannel. <laughs> yeah, she likes cloth, is the thing. <laughs> like, uh, Stuart Murdoch, at most, gets some scarves on the stage. <laughs> and and some French for some French berets. Yeah. And like a typewriter. Maybe an a- maybe an ascot or two. But yeah, that's the album. I hope you guys enjoyed it. I hope I was able to illuminate some stuff for you. I hope like nobody really considers it to be a 0.8 anymore. No. I wish there was more to say about the the 2018 review. But it's, it's just like yeah. yeah, it's just like the album was pretty good. And like he the uh, the writer of it, uh, Scott Plagenhoff. Um, who's one of the main contributors, I think, at this point to Pitchfork. It just seems like he goes track by track and says, like, the references and what the songs are referring to, and then just, like, at one point says, like, Pitchfork's original pan came to similar conclusions as Jack Black and High Fidelity. Yeah. Yeah, it is mostly a a biographical review rather than actually talking about it musically. I feel like Pitchfork does that a lot with their, um, like reissue reviews yeah in that they're just like if there's not like eight paragraphs about the legacy of the album which there often is um it'll just start just going track by track i mean not to say that we're not exactly doing that as well but yeah right it would be interesting if they forced themselves to interact with it as if it was like a new release yeah yeah i do i do like this album now having re-listened to it um I probably won't go back and listen to it much, um, like on a regular basis after this. Um, but I also definitely think that it was better than the original review gave it credit for. Well, so I don't. I, I, I like the album a lot, but I don't even. I don't understand how you could end up with like the kind of vitriol that it would take to give it a zero point eight. Like even if you like really really like Sinister and just wanted them to put out Sinister again, like right. He's not giving you something that much different. <laughs> yeah, it really just is not too much of a departure to warrant like such a, you know, it doesn't break new ground for terrible. Yeah, it does. Uh, on that scale, it just it doesn't really make any sense. And I never really understood why it uh, generated the level of vitriol that it did. Like Maybe. Andrew WK's Andrew WK's I Get Wet, which is their other like famous Mia Culpa, which went from a 0.6 to an 8.6 between uh, original <laughs> release and reissue. Like that one, I kind of get. I can understand hating that album because it's fucking a lot. All right. Bear with it's, me here. OK, bear with me here. Um uh, Stuart Murdoch gets cucked by Aiden Moffat in 1998 or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, in you know a fit of emotional rage, he goes out and sleeps with the first person he can find, who just happens to be the partner of a Pitchfork writer who finds out about it and holds it against <laughs> the band and decides to try and end their career at that very moment. My God. I mean, yeah. um, Pitchfork review writers being weirdly petty is something that's actually come up in like pitchfork metacriticism before um i don't know if you guys remember the blog pitchfork reviews reviews that was a great blog and which I was remember, a good blog I and i exact i really really about. i really fucking want to get him on the show at some point is he do like what is he doing now he wrote some books and okay. i was gonna read them and then i forgot to yeah <laughs> all i know is that someone basically took his story of writing reviews about a review website and like turned it into a movie script and he had pitched a similar movie script and he got ripped off basically Mm, that'll that happen sucks. but uh 
Um, it was essentially as was um, reviewing the review of Das Racist's like only actual album, Relax, and it was talking about the person who wrote the who had written the review having met like uh, the Pitchfork Reviews Reviews guy and Das Racist at like one of their shows, and Das Racist was apparently like kind of dismissive of him of the reviewer because he was basically just trying to be all chummy and um that's reportedly part of the reason why they ended up getting like a six with the album (laughs) despite the fact that it was (laughs) a lot like their mixtapes yeah and like by any stretch should have at least garnered garnered something in like the high seven low eight based on like their own kind of editorial base around the album because uh, I, I don't know how how strongly the review scores were affecting at that point. Because I know now it's like the review scores are basically just decided by a board. Well, now that we have Condé Nast to watch over us, we can avoid those horrible things from happening. So let's all give thanks to them. Yeah, <laughs> Condé Nast who's like, aren't they like basically going to shutter Pitchfork? They're putting <laughs> like a pay, they're, they're, they, they've said they plan to put up paywalls by the end of 2019, which yeah, I got to say, not going to fucking work for them. Does not make no. any sense because like, I feel like Pitchfork right now and like, you know, the era of the Spotify algorithm, they need to be doing as much as they can to make sure like they get readers when like, you know, music everyone's getting recommended like things by an algorithm. Like yeah. no one fucking looks for music anymore. So, so why don't we make the right. site even harder to interact with? That'll be, that'll be great. This is why like any media verticals can fuck off and die. No one yeah. will ever buy noise space. <laughs> I have no price. Pitchfork is currently in the middle of trying really hard to pivot to toilet, and I hope <laughs> that they don't get that far. I mean, it could be worse. They could just kind of shamble on as a zombie corpse that no one reads anymore, like Stereo Gum. That's true. I think they should uh, take a book out of like other what what other big media journalism you know outlets are doing lately and lay off all their writers. <laughs> Yeah, get unpaid contributors to write your reviews for you. Yeah, yeah. Then Do we could take still over Pitchfork. Read Gorilla versus Bear is that still even a thing? They're still around. Brooklyn Vegan's still that's always around. Been, Gorilla versus Bear has always been such a different thing, though, because it's like it. I don't know if it still is, but it's always felt like just one dude. Yeah, yeah. I, I well, it's kind of like, it like Coke, Coke Machine Glow is very similar. Yeah, and like yeah. they don't exist anymore. So tiny mixtapes is still around just because they are just completely off in their own world i hate just tiny mixtapes constantly <laughs> i've never read a tiny they mixtapes have an audience review. because people hate them i feel like yeah i, I remember, feel like they just leaned into that after a while i remember yeah. when um uh whatever the flying lotus album after cosmogramma came out came out yeah um they they just when the quiet it. comes was it Maybe they dismissed it because like it didn't have the same kind of narrative behind it as Cosmogramma did, and like the narrative behind Cosmogramma is that the dude's like grandma had just died and he was incredibly affected by it. So like, sorry, his grandma can't die for every album, you know? It's just not. You can only have so many grandmas. (laughs) Yeah. Well, uh, so I'd say that's about it for uh, the Boy with the Arab Strap. Um, I I like it as an album. Um, it's probably still not my favorite Bell and Sebastian album. Um, but yeah, I I think that it's definitely better than the original review gave it credit for. And I appreciated the newer reviews, um, I guess, historical lesson, um, about everything that came, uh, everything that went into the creation of this album. And I, I feel like Trevor even went into a lot more detail than, 
uh, the, than the uh, than the review did. Which there's I a lot of lore you got to dig around for. It's like the Dark Souls of Bell and Sebastian's albums. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, the thing about the review is that it was very clinical in the way it described things, whereas, like, we're trying to get to the emotional heart of these songs, goddammit, yeah, and no, the emotional honestly, heart of these songs is full of cum. Yeah, and, l- like, <laughs> seriously, Isabel cheating on Stewart with Aiden Moffat is, like, one of my favorite indie rock pop stories out there, probably. It's just, like, the characters are so perfectly suited for it. I just love Absolutely. it. Absolutely. Yeah. And you are, and you're right, it is kind of exactly a Fleetwood Mac situation. <laughs> It's very similar. I just, I love thinking about, like, Isabel walking into the studio a few days afterwards. And, like, Stuart's like, come on, we're all going to practice this new song I wrote. And just, like, side-eyeing her for the entire performance. Here's the here's the lyric sheet. Yeah. Just in case. You don't sing on it, but here it is. Mm-hmm. Well, on that note, let's plug some shit. Um, my name's David. Uh, I'm a host of this podcast as well as another podcast on noisespace.xyz called The Stick. It's about the uh, early 2000s to present uh, Flash animation series Homestar Runner. Uh, I do it with my friend Eden, uh, and you can listen to that at noisespace.xyz, and you can find me on uh, Twitter at D-A-V-V-V-E-S- and uh nowhere else because i don't really do anything on tumblr lately yeah or at least at least like your namesake you're not a landlord correct i'm not (laughs) i'm not the bad landlord of nathan williams that's we have to do a waves album just so we can make jokes about it waves becoming a landlord is another of my favorite indie rock pop twists (laughs) it's really fucking (laughs) funny really good yes Uh, I'm Matt. I run this bitch. Noise Space is my is my child. I'm on Henry Kissinger's Pokemon Going to Die, which is like the flagship politics podcast. And I was actually on an episode this week. Um, and I say a lot of disgusting things that cause psychic damage to the other hosts. So I would highly recommend listening <laughs> to it. Um, I have other podcasts on this network that I never fucking update, but you can check them out anyway if you want to hear about Pokemon or about Canadian culture. And uh, you can find me on Twitter at MattGCN, and if you try to find anywhere else, I will um, shoot to kill. Don't look anywhere else. I am uh, not available elsewhere on the net. God, I got an email last month that nearly gave me a heart attack from Photobucket. Apparently, I, I had a account on there. <laughs> Don't My least favorite thing about Photobucket existing is that so many of my old Pokemon fan game boards relied entirely on Photobucket for image hosting. And so much of those images just no longer exist in any way because Photobucket didn't just take photos offline when you go over your data cap. They just deleted them from your profile. Right. I did get an email from them today um, because Valentine's Day is coming up uh, saying... It's time to take our relationship to the next level for Valentine's Day. I was doing on photo, photo bucket. bucket. <laughs> they they want to uh, they want to do something with me, and I'm not sure that I'm into it. Host your what, nudes like on an overly bucket. sexual bucket. What is this, Homestuck? Hey, <laughs> hey. Let me That's plug a my stuff. Reference podcast. Let me plug my stuff. <laughs> yes. I'm Trevor. I host a podcast on Noise Space with Matt uh, about They Might Be Giants, Giants Confirmed. I also host a podcast about gorillas called Hell You Monkeys, uh, One Hit Wonders called One Hit Wonders of the World. And I'm on Twitter at T-R-V-R-K-R-T-H.
Don't forget State of Swift, man. You oh, get, yeah. State of, State I always State forget Swift. State of Swift, but I host a very good podcast about Taylor Swift called State of Swift, which will be recording its fifth episode pretty soon. Hell yeah. Yeah. All right. So that, well, thanks for having me on, uh, boys. Yeah. Thanks to our guest, Trevor, and thank you to uh, Nikki Flowers for designing the album art for the podcast. Um, you can find uh, all of her stuff at, at Yif Police on Twitter. Um, you can also uh, find uh, the band who did our theme music, uh, Animal Style, uh, at nmlstyl.com. Uh, the title is Open Air from the album Open Air. Um, and uh, as we always say, I had never seen a shooting star before. I hadn't seen a shooting star before either. Yeah, I, I've never seen one of those in my life.